Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Ridge Church Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, check us out online at theridgechurch.net. Also, be sure to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening today. How many of you, when you were growing up, desired to become a doctor or maybe a nurse or a firefighter? You know, all those things, those professions that when we're growing up, um, kids aspire to, they, they see these people on TV, they, they, they see them in this very prestigious role, and, <clears throat> and we have this desire to accomplish something and to be, you know, to do this. And, and, and so, you know, maybe you have that dream and you get to school and, and you continue to pursue that dream, and eventually you go to college and, and, or you get into a trade school if you're going to be a, uh, you know, in a firefighter, and, and you go to training, and, and you go to, you know, if you're going to be a doctor or a nurse, it could be, you know, several years of schooling. And, and you learn all of the, the procedures, all of the, the, the medical terms, all of the terms that, that it requires to understand how fire spreads and, and, and accelerants and, and, and how to fight a fire and, and how to approach a burning building. And, and maybe it's an EMS worker and, and you're, you're equipped, you're, you're taught all of those things. And you have this knowledge. And, and all of a sudden, it, it comes time to, to step out and to do these things. You've read books about great physicians and, and read stories about miraculous, you know, saving experiences where firefighters or, or someone has come in and saved the day and people have been rescued. And, and it's just great heroic stories and, and great surgeries or these things, people that have, have done things for, for medical things and just given their life away for the medical community. And so picture yourself now and ready to embark on that career. You've, you've got all the education, you've done all of those things, you know it, you know, the, the, you know, you know it, you, you know all the data, you know all the answers, and you, your first day on the job, and there's a, a fire alarm goes off, and you, you suit up, and you get in the truck, and you go to the place, and you get out, and the house is on fire, and you say, wow, that's, I can't go in there, <laughs> that's dangerous. Right? I, I can't even handle that hose. That's, that's dangerous too. It's, I can't handle that big heavy thing. I, I'm just going to stand here and watch. I'll be supportive. I'll tell you, yeah, you do that. You go. Right? I'll pray for you. You, you do that. That'd kind of be ridiculous. Now think about it if you're a surgeon. You've prepared all these years and, and you've, you've worked on cadavers and you've done all these things and you know the medical. You've, you've been through all those hard classes and late nights and and all of a sudden, your first day in the surgery room, and you walk in, and you think, I can't handle this responsibility. I can't do this. I'm not, I can't do this. I, I don't, I don't want to live this way. I can't handle that. Well, that would be ridiculous. Right? You've trained all your life for this. Now the, the, now the time comes to live this life that you've been training for, to, to now seize it to, to do all the things that now you've, you've been acquired these skills to be able to go and, and to be successful and to do it. If you want to honor the profession, if you want to make, you know, do that, then you have to step in. You have to get involved in the game. Well, here, as we start Hebrews chapter 13, it's really what the author now is, is kind of doing here at the beginning of 13. Because what have we, the last six months, what have we seen? The author of Hebrews has been speaking to these people that are Jews or Hebrews, and they've come to know Christ, and, and what has he been telling them? He's, he's given them who Jesus is. 
He's told them what he does and how he's the great high priest and his perfect sacrifice. He's shared all of that. It's kind of like doctrine. He's explained what exactly Jesus does so that we can be forgiven. He's educating his readers. He's educating us today when we read this text. Why did Jesus have to come? Who was he? How did he replace the covenantal system, right? The the sacrificial system. He became the perfect high priest. It's this understanding of what God did through his son specifically. We call that doctrine and how we come to know Christ and, and what it looks like. And then he talks about people that have in the Old Testament, who maybe weren't very faithful at times in the wilderness, and, and he gives this, paints this picture. Kind of like if you're in training, you may be in, in firefighter training and find out, look, this is not how you do this. Because if you do this, if you open that door, then fire could spread. Or you don't do this. You don't put water on an electrical fire, right? You're being taught what to do, and they may even tell you some stories of when people have done that. This is the negative thing that happens. And maybe if you're the surgeon, you found out what not to do because things go badly when you go that way. And so we're educated. That's what the writer here has done. He said, look, there's been people in history, your, your relatives, actually your ancestors, have done these things, and they were not faithful. But then he turns in chapter 11, and he says, but there's been many that have been faithful, and there's these great stories of, of faith and, and obedience and, and all of that. And so maybe in your training, you've, you've heard those stories too of great Great things where people have been heroic and went in and saved the baby or saved the family or saved the dog even, you know what I mean? And, and these great stories. But now what the writer of Hebrews is saying, he says, now look, I've, I've given you all that. I've told you who he is. I've told you exactly the doctrine and how God has done this. I've told you stories on how our ancestors weren't faithful. I've shared stories of faithfulness. Last week, Brian talked about Mount Sinai and, and, you know, Mount Zion and this, this decision that we must make of who we're going to follow, right? Are we going to live under the law? Are we going to live under Christ? Is we going to let him be our redeemer? And that's going to require worship. And worship is an act of, of sacrifice, right? Even though the sacrificial system is done away with, as believers, we are called to sacrifice ourselves, our life, to give it away. And so that's what we looked at. And so what the writer here now is doing in Hebrews 13 is he's saying, okay, I've told you all that. Now it's time to get in the game. Now it's time to live the life that you've been training for, the life that I've been instructing you on. If you're going to now follow Jesus, it's going to require you to step in and start doing something. No longer can I just sit here and tell you who he was and he was greater than Moses and, and, and greater than the angels and, and, and I can talk to you about the faith of Abraham and, and the faith of you know, all the people in the Old Testament, you know, no, it's time now to live this out. Now is time, right? Now, now think about what I was saying earlier. It would be ridiculous if you did all that training as a firefighter or a doctor and then didn't live it out. And that's what the author is saying. This is, okay, you, you have to now live this out. You've said you're a believer. You've said that this is who you believe, that you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that God has done these things, and now what's it going to do? What's it going to be? And so here's your big idea for this morning. To believe in Christ requires living for Christ. To believe in Christ requires living for Christ. That just makes sense, doesn't it? We, we've said it for years here, right? We, if we believe, believe leads to action. If there is no action, then I would question whether we believe. And this is what really the author is trying to say. He says, look, I'm going to tell you how you need to 
to examine your life and what you need to do. He's going to give us some, what we would say is commands or imperatives about how to live and how to function as a believer. It's not enough just to know. It's not enough just to be smart, to be intellectually smart, to be theologically smart. It's not enough to be trained as a, as a surgeon or trained to fight fires. You have to now engage in that thing. And if you do not, then you're really not a surgeon. You're really not a fireman or a firefighter. And I think what he's going to argue is that if you don't do these things, then you need to question whether you're really a Christian. This is how we see it. This is how we know. And so he's going to give us six things here in the text. In these six verses, we're going to look at six things that, that kind of point to that we are living for Christ if these things are present in our life. And, and I will tell you right up front that these things are, we're not all going to be you know, getting tens on these things. Some of us are going to be void in our life to some degree. Some of them are, are seemingly to apply to things maybe we're going to have to find some practical application in our life today because uh, what specifically they apply to then may not exactly apply to us today, but I'm going to give you some ideas on how we can apply some of these things in our life today. And so let's jump right in. Hebrews chapter 13, the first verse of our text this morning. 13 verse 1. Let brotherly love continue. Let brotherly love continue. So what is, what is this thr thrust here? So first of all, I want to say that this idea, brotherly love, what, what is that? Um, first of all, it's not just brothers. It, it means the saints. It means brothers and sisters, right? This love for one another as Christians. Let it continue, right? This, this word brotherly love, this word here in the text um, from the Greek is this word we get Philadelphia, which is why we call what Philadelphia the city of brotherly love, right? It's this, it's, there's different kinds of love in Scripture, but this one is a, a brotherly love, a love of deep intimacy, of friendships, of trust. And what he's saying is, is let that love, that type of love, that intimacy, this deep friendship, let it continue. Now, who's he speaking to here? Now, this is some, there's some debate, um, but I think he's speaking to the church in this whole thing. Now, there is application for outside the church as well, for people that are not in the church. Look, we should love people that are not believers, absolutely. But here, I think in the text, he's primarily speaking to other believers, right? And he's telling them how they should interact in the church, right? He's told them all these things about the new covenant and who Jesus is, and now he's instructing them practically, how do you live this out as a, as a body of believers? And the first thing he says is, let brotherly love continue, now, notice this word continue. What, what is he saying there? He, so, obviously, it's, it's there. They understand the importance of it. But this word continue, we don't know. Maybe he's saying, like, he understands that loving one another is challenging. Amen? <laughs> like, if, if, do you all struggle to love everybody in the church? Yeah. Some people, maybe even me at times, rub you wrong, and so it's a challenge. And so what, what the author's trying to say is, is I'm, I'm going to show you that the foundation of what I'm getting ready to talk to you about in these, these next six verses is that love has to be the foundational thing over all of this, because it is what holds it all together. Many places, Scripture talks about that, that love holds all these things together, right? The love chapter, the greatest of these things is love. It wraps it all up. And he's laying a foundation. It needs to continue. It needs to, you're doing it now, and it needs to continue throughout the rest of your life, the rest of the church life, the rest of your life as a believer. It needs to be a, a foundational thing. Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 12, verse 10. 
love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Now, when he says outdo one another, it's not a contest. This is not something that we do pridefully, that we do to, to get attention. But what he's saying is this, is this is an intentional thing. Loving is intentional, and, and we should be seeking at ways to find out how to love one another better. It should not be a, one of apathy. It's one that we have to think about. That's why he says, let love continue. It's this idea, you need to be thinking about it. It's there, but you need to keep working at it. You need to keep, because the, the apathy will set in. Comfort will set in, and you will back away, and you'll pull away from it. Because what? Loving is hard. Loving is hard. Why? Because our flesh wants what it wants, and it causes problems and challenges in our relationships. And so here he just says, outdo one another in showing honor. I love, though, how John puts it in his first letter, 1 John. <clears throat> He's writing to the church in 1 John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. Now here, uh, John is, is writing this letter, I think, primarily to, to encourage the early church and, and remind them that they've seen Jesus, and if they, if they confess to be a believer, here's what this looks like. Here's what it looks like to follow Christ. He talks about several things here in, in 1 John, but here he talks about, about loving other believers. And, and if, if this line here in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 1, let brother love continue, is not strong enough, let's look at what John has to say about it here in 1 John chapter 3, verse 14 and 15. We know that we have passed out of death into life. Now, you know, as soon as you hear those words, this is going to be an impactful statement because he's talking about life and death issues, right? <clears throat> We've passed out of death into life. Why? Because we love the brothers. We love others. We love believers, right? The brethren. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So, translation, you need to be serious about loving other believers. Because what Scripture is saying is if you don't love the family of God, if you don't love the believers, now, now I'm saying people that profess Christ, I'm not talking about people that are perfect because there isn't anybody. We all come into this place with sin as believers. We all have challenges. We all have sin that we struggle with. And he's saying, if someone professes to be a believer, you need to love them. Do you know what? You're going to spend eternity with these people. Right? Now, granted, hopefully in our glorified position, we won't struggle with sin, obviously. But he's saying now is the time to love people and to love them well. And if you do not love them, what does he say here? There's no eternal life abiding in him if we don't love each other. Now, obviously, that's a, that's a very, something would, we'd have to hate the church, hate the body of Christ. But I will tell you that, that many people, what do they say? Well, I don't want to go to church. Why? Because I don't like church people. <laughs> like, oh, okay. You're, you're flirting with something here that I think you're going to be very careful of. Because, well, they're sinful. Well, you're sinful. So, so you need to love each other. Grace needs to abound. Love needs to abound. And I think that's what he's trying to start out here. He says, if you're going to take all this knowledge that I've given you, and Jesus, and all of this, and, and we know that we have a new covenant, what is going to be the foundational piece of that is that we're going to have to love each other. We're going to have to continue to love each other. And we need to be for each other. Even when we disagree on things, we need to be for each other. We're going to be different. We come from different backgrounds. We, we come from different church experiences. We, we have different thoughts about doctrinal things sometimes and theological things, and, and we need to wrestle with those things. We need to be honest with each other about those things. But we do it under 
the foundation or on the foundation of love. So the first thing we do to, if we want to see if we're living for Christ is that are we loving fellow believers? The second thing I want to share with you is that we can see it if we're serving people we don't know, serving people you don't know. So what do you mean by that? So one of the things he's kind of saying here is, says, look, you need to serve people you don't know. I just want to give you a, a little example before we read the text. So in the, the New Testament here, time frame, um, believers, if you became a believer, specifically probably because he's speaking to Jews here, if you followed Christ, what do you think the challenge was there? Is that your family probably rejected you, right? You, you may have been rejected by family and friends, maybe by even the, the religious institution. You, you could be kind of an outcast, right? And so you, you, you're kind of on your own. You need people in the Christian community who do not know you to help you, to take you in. If you traveled from town to town, maybe, if you were set out because your family's rejected you and you've set out, you need places to stay. And, and you know, there, there wasn't Comfort Inns and Hotel Six on every corner, right? And so, but there was inns that you could stay in. But the problem with that was is that almost all of those places were filled with sexual immorality. And Christians didn't want to stay there. They didn't, it wasn't safe for them. And so they would find a church, maybe a house church, and they would go into a town, and they would find a house church, and they would begin to, to worship with somebody, and then you'd find out that they have no place to stay. And nobody knows this person. They're a professed believer. They're here in our worship environment with us, with our, or their family worshiping, but they have no place to stay. And so what does he say in verse 2? Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Let's take a look at that first three words. Do not neglect. Once again, not only, it's another reminder here. It's, it's really a commandment. Do not neglect to do this. Because see, that the temptation as believers is to fall back into apathy and comfort. That's what he says, let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality. He's just saying, these are things that you need to step into and be intentional about. And it's to show it to strangers. Because these people, they didn't know them. They didn't have anything. And so they would take them in and, and they would help them and, and give them food and, and give them shelter for a few days and, and help them. Now in our culture today, it's, we, don't, we don't have the same opportunities there sometimes. We do, especially living out here in suburbia, if you're in the inner city, it's a little different. And obviously there's some dangers there, some wisdom that has to be deployed. Even later uh, in the early church, there was some, some councils that put out things about how you have to be careful about who you let in because people do take advantage. But we need to make sure that we are available to help people that we don't know. Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 12, verse 13, which is following up on what we said earlier. It says, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. See, this word seek, once again, is this idea that it's, it's intentional. It's, you're pursuing something. You're pursuing hospitality. It's not something that's just going to happen. You're going to have to get out of your comfort zone to do this. You're going to have to be intentional about doing this. And that's what he's trying to get them to be aware of. He's trying to say you can't come to Jesus and just now have a holy huddle and just be happy that way. You need to be about living for Christ, and this is what it's going to require. First Peter puts it this way in First Peter chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. See that 
there it is again. Peter's saying, you got to keep doing it. It's not enough just to do it once. It's not enough just to say, oh, I did that. Look at me. Didn't I do great at that? No, you got to keep doing this. This is a lifestyle way of living. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. This idea that it's, it's passionately, it's, 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 not, it's sacrificially, it's, it's something so important. Since love covers a multitude of sins, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. <clears throat> Since love covers a multitude of sins. So basically, I think what the author's trying to say is, is look, some of these people that you take in and you help, these strangers, there's gonna be, they're going to be sinful. There's, they're not going to be perfect people, and you're going to get irritated. But love covers a multitude of sins, so don't grumble. Love them. Serve them. Don't grumble. Don't complain. Don't complain. You know, this, this idea of um, how, how do we do that today, right? How do we, how do we function that way? Uh, we, we don't see strangers. We don't have people traveling and, and, and doing that type of thing. And so sometimes it's hard. And, and I would just ask you well, here specifically in the church, let's apply it this way maybe. When was the last time you invited somebody or a couple or a family that you don't know out to lunch or over for dinner or to the park or to a cookout? I know we're really good sometimes. We are a fellowship church. We're always really good about inviting people we know. When was the last time you said, you know, looked at your spouse and maybe another couple and said, hey, why don't we invite, you know, so-and-so and and their kids and have over for a cookout? Let's get to know them, right? That's a way that we kind of step out and and we, we can serve people that we don't know, right? We can serve people because this, this idea, if we're going to really put to practice all that we've learned and this idea of living for Christ, we need to serve people that we don't know. Then he says this thing, he says, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Okay, it's like, what does that mean? Like, does that mean that we should be motivated to, to entertain strangers, hoping that we're going to have an angel come into our home and, and go out to dinner with us? That's not what he's saying here. I think what he's saying here is he's tapping into their memory of this, this probably this situation in the Old Testament where Abraham, angels come to him, and, and I won't go into the whole story for time, but, but basically it's before Sodom and Gomorrah, and he realizes they're angels finally, and, and he entertains them, he feeds them. And, and, and so what they're saying is, is you don't know what God is going to do as you reach out to people. And this term angel also means messenger. Really, the, the term really means messenger, and obviously angels are messengers from God. But I would even say that sometimes and many times God uses people in our lives as messengers to speak into our life. And sometimes if we would just entertain people, people would speak in their life. It would be a way that God could speak into our life and show us something about ourselves or about something in our life. But if we're never opening that door up for, to be able to entertain people, we may not see that. I'm so much more richly blessed by the number of people that I now know. God has used them and their, their influence in my life to change my life. And yet, it, sometimes I have to step out to get to know people. And so we need to step out. All right, so not only do we can see how to live for Christ by loving fellow believers, but by serving people you don't know, but a third one, by intentionally caring for people who are in need. By intentionally caring for people who are in need. Let's go to the text. 
Hebrews chapter three or chapter 13, verse three. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Now, once again, how does he start out the sentence? Remember. You see the theme here in every one of these. Let brother love continue. It's, it's encouraging us to, to do something. Do not neglect. He's reminding us that we can fall into an apathy. Now he's saying remember. Because see, here's the issue. People that are mistreated, people that are, are in prison in this, this community, we, we remove ourselves. We, we can live our life the way we want. It's, it's, it's easy. We, we don't want to have to deal with that. And we just forget about those people. Yeah, life is hard, but it's not hard for me, and so I can just forget about those people. And it's, maybe it's not a conscious thing, but we do it. And so what the author is saying, remember those in prison. Right now, I want to share a little bit about prison then. People were put in prison for many different reasons. Many of it because they couldn't pay a debt. And so maybe you were a Christian, you couldn't pay a debt, and you were put in prison. Maybe you were sharing the gospel or, or something was going on, and you were put in prison for that. Maybe you were mistreated. And that's what it's talking about here as well for, for sharing the gospel, for living out your Christian faith. People are persecuting you. So here, he's to remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them. What he's saying there, he says, look, you have brothers and sisters that, that are being mistreated and in prison. And I just want to take you there. It says, as though in prison with them. In other words, he wants you to feel their pain, because if you don't remember what they're going through, you will not be motivated and, and driven to help them. You will not have any desire to do it if you don't understand their pain. He says, so as though in prison with them, because if you felt what they feel, if you were going through what they were going through, you would be motivated to help them because you would want someone to help you and come and see you. And then he goes on there and says, and those who are mistreated. So it's not just those in prison. It's those who are just suffering in some way, right? Generally, once again, probably because of persecution of some sort, because they're Christians, they're mistreated. And then he goes there and he says, since you, are also, since you also are in the body. Here I don't think he's talking about being in the body of Christ. He's saying because you are in, in the flesh as well, you understand what it's like to be mistreated. You understand what it's like to be in a, in a dungeon, chained and lonely. Your body understands that. And because you can connect with that, Think this way, as though in prison with them, so that you'll remember to go and to serve them. It's going to cause you to have to be intentional to care for them. I was, um, this earlier this week, and I was trying to think, okay, we don't, we don't have that right now. I don't know how many of you have ever been to a prison. Um, I've been to a couple. Um, I've been to some events um, in prisons where the, the gospel is preached. I've had some friends, uh, Christ followers, uh, at least professed Christ followers, I believe they were Christ followers, uh, who have done things and that they regretted and were repentful for and were in prison, and, and I would go and see them. Um, I had to remember them, though. And it was hard. It was an hour and a half drive to the prison. Uh, it's for, so for me, that's almost like a whole day. By the time you drive an hour and a half, two hours to get there, drive two hours to get back, spend an hour there. I mean, it, it, it's, it's a whole day event. And, and, you know, it's a little uneasy. Is this something like, oh, I can't wait to go to the prison today, you know, and, and see somebody. Obviously, I cared about these people. So I had, to, I had to remember. I had to make, I had to understand what it must be like for them to be there. With the, are they getting any visitors? Do they have any hope? Do, is anybody there to encourage them, to pray for them? Do they even know that we know that they're there and that we care about them? And so I would go and, and share and talk and, 
and pray with them. And, and you know, when they shut those doors behind you, that's a different feeling. You know, you walk in and you think, I can do this. And you go through and you have to give all your stuff away, your cell phone away. And, and next thing you know, you're through the gate. And then one door will closes behind you. Another door closes behind you. And, and I'm starting to think about movies that people don't get out of things like this. You know what I mean? That just goes through your head real quick. And you think, okay, I can do this. I, I'm going to be okay. And what if something happens? You know, what if somebody loses their temper and in the room that we're sitting in? There's just a bunch of us sitting here together. Anything could happen. A fight could break out. I mean, you just, things like that happen. But this idea that we have to be intentional. We have to risk things to care for one another, right? So we need to remember them. So I'm thinking like, well, how do we, Lord, how do we apply that to our life today? Maybe you know someone in prison. Maybe you know this being someone persecuted for their faith. Now, honestly, here in our, in our country today, right now, um, that's not happening a whole lot. It's happening, but people probably aren't in prison for it very much. Overseas, that's a whole different issue. We could probably definitely have a whole different way to speak about this, but I'm trying to relate it to how we are today in our culture. How can we apply this principle in our life? So this week, I get a phone call um, from a woman, uh, probably in her 50s, I think, and she lives here in the Brookville area, and um, she has some severe health issues. And she's in a wheelchair, can't get out of a wheelchair. Um, she's on disability. She has an aide. Um, I think that maybe it's even a sister uh, that lives with her, helps take care of her a little bit. Um, the disability that this lady gets is, is so low, it's like less than $5,000 a year. That's all she has. Can you imagine living on $5,000? <laughs> Actually, 4800 to be more exact. She has someone that lives there as the aide that makes a, a meager income, but together I would say they're probably in the, almost in the poverty range, and they live here in Brookville. And this lady called and just was in tears and wanting assistance with some gas to, to put in her car so that she could go to her doctor's appointment. She has so many medical issues, and she goes and has to make several trips to the doctor, and some days she has to be there for a couple days for tests. And I said, do you have any friends? She said, not really. She said, I can't get out. Family's pretty much gone, except for the person that lives with them. She was crying. She just felt life was like, what's going on with my life? I think she's in prison. I think, I think she's being mistreated. Now, not in the same way here as in the text. So my challenge to me and to you is are we intentionally caring for these people? Or do we even seek them out? See, we don't, we don't remember that those people are all around us because we have our own life and we have our own things we have to do and fill our day with all sorts of stuff. And, but is there any part of our life we're carving out time to minister to these people, to intentionally seek them out? Target Dayton is a wonderful opportunity to do some of those things. But here right in our own town, so what did I do? I talked to her a little bit. I asked her about her relationship with the Lord. And, and she said, oh, yeah, my, my grandfather was a Southern Baptist pastor. And I'm like, well, okay, that's, that's good. doesn't mean that you are where you need to be, right? And she said, I was baptized. And I said, okay, great. I said, so if you die today, would you go to heaven? Yep, absolutely. And I'm thinking, wow, this is great. I said, so what would you tell the Lord? Well, I've been good. I let her talk for a little while, and there's no sign of the gospel. No side of understanding the gospel. I'm thinking, she doesn't have a church. She can't get out. No one's there reading scripture to her. No one's there ministering to her. 
And so I spent some time talking and sharing the gospel with her and was very clear about what the gospel is and asked her if she believed that and, and how he dies for us and that good, it can't be good enough. And, and she's in tears and she's thankful. And, and, you know, I don't know what the Lord is doing with that. She was so grateful that I called. I spent time talking to her, I guess. And so I got with the Hope team. The Hope team has contacted her. The Hope team is a benevolence team inside the church, and they've reached out to her, and they're going to minister to her. But see, here's the, here's the challenge, though, for us, is it's easy to throw some money at that. Here's $100, gas cards. Love you. Have a good life. Right? That, that's the easy thing. But when it says, remember those in prison as though in prison with them, it's this idea that do you feel their loneliness? Do you feel their despair? And if you do, it will drive you to remember them and drive you to love them and do something and serve them in some way. That's what the author, I think, is trying to tell the early church here. It is not just enough to have intellectual knowledge. We need to love. We need to get out of our bubbles and we need to love. And look, I struggle with it as well. But it's what we need to do. Jesus puts it this way in this Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 25, verses 35 through 36. Here he's been, towards the end of the Gospel here, he's, he's talking about the end when, when he will come and separate the sheep from the goats. And, and, and he's kind of saying, well, so how, how do you know who's a sheep and who's a goat? And, and they kind of are asking him. And he says, well, here's, here's how you know that you're a sheep. He says, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. I mean, that really sums up the whole message today. Love motivates us to care for people, to love people, to feel their pain, to have compassion, to be intentional about caring for those in need. All right, here's the fourth thing that shows that we're living for Christ by honoring marriage. By honoring marriage. And this is a big one. This idea here that, that what the author is saying, he says, look, if you're living for the Lord, love is important, and, and you need to love one another, you need to serve one another, you need to serve strangers, you need to take care of those that are mistreated, those that are feeling lonely and in prison, you need to do all of those things. But now he kind of turns a little bit and he says, but here's a really big one, you need to honor marriage. Where did that one come from? Like that, and I just want to show you how foundational this is. The author is talking now about something that's foundational in the Christian faith. It is foundational in, in what it means to be a believer. Not that you have to be married, but marriage, this covenant marriage, is a picture of the gospel. It is the image bearer. It is where, where grace is demonstrated. It's, it's the image bearer because Christ is the groom and, and the church is the bride. And how this thing, how we honor marriage, says everything about who we are. Everything about who we are. And how are we doing in our culture today about honoring marriage? Forget about what the world's doing. How is the church doing in honoring marriage? I haven't read the latest statistics yet, but I believe that the divorce rate almost in the church is the same as it is outside the church. That is, should never be that way. And, and I just want to say this. If you're, if you're divorced this morning, um, I, I, there's grace. There's, God is gracious, right? Um, we live in a fallen world. Um, 
obviously, I, I've married someone that our relationship, she was divorced. I mean, she's a wonderful woman, and, and there's grace for that. And, and Brian Desiree have been divorced, and, and, and they, they love each other. And, but, but this idea that we should honor marriage as we're moving forward, as we're growing in our faith, we should honor marriage in all ways. So what does he say here in the text in verse 4? Let marriage be held in honor among all. Okay. When he says among all, I think he's meaning inside the church. We, we can't tell what people can do outside the church. If they don't have an understanding of the gospel, then marriage doesn't mean what it means to people inside the church. He's saying everyone in the church, I don't care who you are, should hold up marriage and honor marriage. It's that foundational to our culture, to our Christian hope and faith, and ultimately glorifying to God. I'm going to give you, just quickly, five things that I think dishonor marriage. Five things. These are, most of these are like, no kidding, obviously. Divorce dishonors marriage. You say, well, you don't know my relationship. No, I, I'm not saying that, that you didn't, that your circumstances weren't horrible. I'm just saying that in the big picture of things, divorce is not what God wants. Divorce is not what God wants. And so what do we do about that? Because we say, well, you don't know the circumstances. You're right. And I will tell you that one of the things, the first thing that you need to do is make sure that you're not getting married until you really know who you're marrying and what the consequences of marriage is, what you're signing up for. You, you need to make sure that, because, you know, here's the thing. I'm, I'm counseling a couple right now that is, we, we do biblical counseling, uh, premarital counseling. It's, it's maybe eight to ten weeks. And we're going through all sorts of spiritual things and help them understand what marriage is. Because what marriage is, is a, is a covenant for life. And that means that when these, these two young people get married, and the day after, something happens to one of them, and they're paralyzed from the waist down, that spouse is going to spend the rest of their life caring and helping this person. Are you ready for that? And see, too many people get married and, and don't ever think about any of that. They don't think about, is, am I ready for that commitment? And do I love this person that way? Do, are, we, are we spiritually yoked together. I mean, is this, do we both understand the gospel? Do we, do we understand what it means to, to have a covenant marriage? Do we understand what that looks like? Many people do not. And they go and they get married and, and they end up with challenges. And look, all marriages have challenges. And then I would say, what are you doing to fix it? I, I've, I've probably said this before, but, but many couples and our whole biblical counseling, much of that, not all of it, but much of that is, is for couples that are not getting along and, and marriage disputes. And we love the fact that people are coming in and, and want help. And it, we, we've seen great things work through that. God worked through. Sometimes they end up and still get divorced. But in almost every case that those people end up and get divorced, here's one of the things that I've noticed. This problem has been around for 20 years and did nothing to resolve it. Nothing to deal with it. Nothing to bring the gospel to bear. Not finding any accountability, not any counsel from anyone. And finally, when it's falling apart in its last days, they throw a Hail Mary out and say, can somebody help us? Yeah, we'll try, but their hearts are so hard, usually at that point it's hard. If you want to honor marriage, you've got to do everything possibly to keep from divorce. And that means on the front end of marriage, not waiting until you have a problem. Another one, marriage is dishonored by living together outside of marriage. People in the church live together, in the big church. I'm sure people in our church. Dishonors marriage. God does not want it. 
It is detestable. He does not want people living together. It dishonors marriage. And marriage is that foundational in the plan, right? In Christianity, it's the image bearer. He does not want that to be part of it. Another one. Marriage is dishonored by adultery. Being married and having sexual relationships outside of your relationship with your spouse. I would argue that even emotional relationships could fall into that category. Obviously, it's not physical adultery, but emotional adultery. I believe that marriage is also dishonored by neglect. By neglect. Couples that live together and and have no intimacy whatsoever in any way, any spiritual intimacy, any relational intimacy, any physical intimacy, they, they, just, they just live together. That dishonors marriage. I'm not saying that you're doing that on purpose. I'm just saying I want you to understand that God has designed marriage to be a thriving thing. Like I struggle as a husband to, to do what God wants me to do and to live out that marriage like I should. And finally, marriage is dishonored by changing its definition. We've changed the definition here in our country. Some churches are changing the definition. This isn't just the Supreme Court changing the definition. This is whole denominations changing the definition of marriage. I think that's an abomination to God and it is clearly dishonoring marriage. He goes on there, it says, let marriage be held in honor among all, but then what does he say? And let the marriage bed be undefiled. Why? For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Okay, now here I want to spend, I want to camp out here just for a few minutes. So something so precious as marriage, when something is so precious and God values it at such a high level, that means that to disparage it and to not honor it comes equally with great judgment. Right? The greater the crime, the more the judgment. And I'm going to show you what God thinks. And two weeks ago, we spent some time here, and, and I'm going to read you several verses. Because when I look at our culture today, and I, I see what's on TV, and I see the access to, uh, to things that promote sexual immorality, and I see the way, um, I know the way I used to live, and I, I know the way that people are living today in our culture, and, and you know, some of the challenges that young people face, and, and not, this, not that this is reserved just for young people, it's for all of us. Um, Sexual morality is flagrant in our world, everywhere. And I think we've gotten so used to it, it doesn't even affect us anymore. It, it doesn't, it's not detestable like it should be. At least I've noticed that in my own heart. And I'm really working hard at, at doing some things to, to put it off and to, to re- stay away from it. But, but of, the, of the 27 books of the New Testament, more than half of them address Sexual morality. And so I just want to read you some passages. So you just got to bear with me for just a few minutes. Acts chapter 21, verse 25. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, now these are Greeks or Gentiles that have believed in the gospel, right? We have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from the blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual morality. Okay, so these, these Gentiles have come. He says, okay, no idol worship, no eating the idols, no blood, and no sexual morality, okay? Romans, Paul says in chapter 13, verse 13, first part of 13, 
Let us walk properly in the daytime, not in orgies or drunkenness, not in sexual immorality or sensuality. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 13, the body is not meant for sexual morality, but for the Lord. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither sexual moral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. 1 Corinthians 6, 18, flee from sexual morality. Galatians chapter 5, verse 19, the works of the flesh are evident, sexual morality, impurity, and sensuality. Ephesians chapter 5, but sexual immorality and all impurities of covetousness must not be named among you as it is proper, as, as proper among the saints. Ephesians again, for, for it to be sure that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who has covetousness, that is idolatry, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God and of Christ. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, put to death therefore what is earthly to you, sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexually, sexual immorality. Jude, yes, even in the book of Jude, chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 7, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which were un, uh, likewise indulged in secular, sexual morality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Revelations, 12 times it is mentioned. Revelations 2, verse 21 through 22. I gave her time to repent, talking about Jezebel, and she refused to repent of her sexual morality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her, and I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of their works. I could go on and on and on. What's my point? Sexual morality should be killed in the church. Can you imagine, just, just think with me a second, if the church lived wholly before the Lord in that area alone, I'm not talking pridefully and self-righteously, I'm just saying, if we were just faithful in sexual things, faithful, we didn't we, we work things out. We, we got married and made sure that we love the person we're getting married to. We understand the commitment. We work things out when they're struggling in our marriage right away and not waiting. We, we, we don't enter into sexual immorality. We're not sleeping with people that are not our spouses. We don't sleep out with each other outside of the marriage. If we just did that, we would be set apart in the world, would we not? We would look differently than the entire world. And people would say, how do you guys do that? You are so different. But the problem is that the church is becoming looking much like the culture. We are not set apart at all. I, I would love to be a place where, look, I know we all struggle, so I'm, not, I'm just trying to say that should be our goal. Wouldn't that be a beautiful thing? And I would love for people to come in here and say, I, they don't judge me. They're not, a, they're not affirming me, but they're loving on me, and they live this way. How do they do that? I want what they have. But see, the problem is we're not doing that. Many of us are, are so caught up in, in all the cultural sexual morality and all of the things, you know, between the internet and social media and movies and literature. And, and, and I'll just tell you, if you're thinking about, well, um, I, I don't do those things. You know, I've not slept with somebody that's not my wife and, I, you know, whatever. I'm saying, okay, but I, I want to say that, you know, back in, in the first century, I don't know that they had pornography like we have it today. They clearly didn't have the internet and they didn't have all the opportunities to see uh, pictures and all of the things and read some of the salacious material that's out there and do all of those things. And I will say that, I, I would say that what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount is you lust in your heart is the same thing as committing adultery. 
And so if you're viewing pornography, if you're doing all those things, I think what he's saying is, is you are living in sexual morality. You're, you're doing that. You say, well, because we always want to make this excuse, well, I'm not actually doing it. I'm just doing it over here in my mind with this. And I think he's saying, no, you're not, you're not a, you can't get out of it that easy. You're living this way. You're living this way. I want to give you some homework. So this week, if you um, now I don't if you're not watching TV, then don't go watch TV to do this homework. But I'm saying if you're already watching TV, I want you to be I want you to be aware of something. Keep a little pad of paper or or something your phone next to you. In every show you watch, every time sexual things happen on that TV show, and first of all, you shouldn't be watching them, especially with the kids, if there's anything graphic at all. But just on every every commercial, every every movie, every sitcom, whatever, any type of sexual action, I would like you to note, is it between a married couple or between an unmarried couple? I think you'll be astounded. Less than, I would say, 10% of the sexual interaction you see on TV is between married couples. So how do you think we're, we're teaching our children? If you put your kids down in front of the TV, if we're watching TV, it is just desensitizing us. It is... It is just, it's just not good. So how do, how do you combat that? Well, first of all, maybe you don't have cable. <gasps> you know, Maybe you just refuse to watch certain things. Maybe clearly you audit what your children are watching and viewing on their phone. Maybe they don't have a phone until a certain age, until they're more responsible. Maybe you're watching a show, and this happens frequently with us, where we'll be watching something, and all of a sudden something will come on the screen that I'm like, okay, this is not appropriate. Now, I have a couple choices here. One, sometimes I just close my eyes. I'm not going to watch that. Sometimes I get up and I walk away. Sometimes we mute it. Sometimes we fast forward it. Sometimes we decide to shut it off and not watch that any longer. I can tell you there's been a couple Netflix series, a little few sci-fi series that I'm like, okay, we can find something that's sci-fi. There's not going to be any gratuity in here, nothing sexual immorality. I'm watching it three or four shows in. It's a great show. And all of a sudden, whoo, man, the thing takes a left turn. And there's so much sexual morality in it, and we've just said, that's done. We're done. Not going to do that one anymore. Now, my flesh still wants to watch the show because now it's got me engaged, but I, I would have to say no to it. I'm just saying... I want, I want us to hold each other accountable. I want us to be praying for each other. I want us to be a church that, can, that God someday will come back and say, well done in that area. Well done. Right? Well done. Where are we? Fifth point. Another sign that we are um, living for Christ by being content in Christ by being content. What's one of the things that our culture struggles with a lot today, right? Being content. We always look at what somebody else has. We always want more. We can never have enough. And so what is he addresses this here? Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. It says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave nor forsake you. Keep your life free from the love of money. Money's not the problem. Our love of it is. In fact, money is a wonderful thing. It does great things. It can bless people. Look, I wouldn't tell everybody to give all their money away. Then we'd all be poor and somebody would have to help us. The fact is we work hard. We earn money. That's a great thing that's that's God honoring. And we can use our funds for the glory of God. Look, 
next Saturday, we will spend, I don't know, $5,000, something like that, loving on 70 families that are going to come here and loving on each other, right? Well, if nobody gave any funds, we couldn't do that. We couldn't love people that way. If people wouldn't have given, we wouldn't have this place to sit, this, this ability to be here. There's, there's so many ministries. We have our hope ministry that we're doing things. We're loving on people. We have missionaries in, in, in around the world that, that are trying to share the gospel. Without funds, that would not be possible. So money's not the problem. It's our love for money. It's our love for, for things. And even at the church, we have to be careful of that. Some churches... And I'm, I'm not here to judge any of the churches. I'm just saying you have to be careful. Some churches want million-dollar, multi-million-dollar sanctuaries. And, and maybe that's okay. I don't know. I'm not in their circles. But I'm saying, isn't there many things we can do? We didn't spend millions and millions of dollars here. We use volunteer labor. I'm not, I'm not putting those churches down that have done that. I think we just need to think long and hard in how we spend the Lord's money. So we need to be content. First Timothy chapter 6, Paul puts it this way in verse 10. It says, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is, though, it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pangs. This idea that, that we have to be so on guard for finances. And, and what do we do with money? And we can have a debate about whether the church should... Uh, should preach tithing or rather tithing is something from the Old Testament. But the fact is, is that when we give, we're giving his money back to him, right? It's, it's, he's given us all these things, and now what we ask, he asks us to give is give back what he's given us. Why does he ask us to do that? He doesn't need us. It's because he needs us to let it go. He needs us to train us that it's not going to control us. And the only way we can demonstrate that and really put that thing on a leash is by letting it go is by letting it go. I've said this before. Three major things that control us in our life. Food, sexuality, and money. And notice what God does on every one of those. He puts boundaries on them. Sexuality, inside the marriage only. Money, you need to give it away. You need to give to the work of the Lord. Three, you need to fast from time to time. Because if you don't do these things, your flesh is going to take over in each one of those areas. It's going to dominate you. And it does. <laughs> right? We've, we've talked about it. We, we struggle with food, we struggle with how we spend our money, and clearly sexuality in our culture. And that's all true inside the church. It's all true inside the church. So we need to be on guard for it. Where do you find your contentment? What makes you secure? And then he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So he's saying, you need to be content because I will never leave you nor forsake you. I just want to be honest with you. <laughs> everything you have and everything you'll ever achieve someday will be taken from you. Everything you have, everything you own, every land, every, every piece of property, every, every material thing, every, every status symbol in your life, except for your salvation, your standing with Christ will be taken from you one day when you die. You don't get to take any of it with you. But it's odd. Many of us, that's where we find our contentment. 
says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That, that term, that phraseology probably first showed up in Deuteronomy when they were getting ready to enter the promised land and, and Joshua was um, getting ready to take over for Moses. Moses was not going to be allowed to go into the promised land. He was 120 years old and he had kind of disobeyed God and wasn't allowed. And, and so God tells Moses to tell Joshua to not be afraid, to be strong and courageous. And he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now, obviously, Josh, Joshua's view of God, obviously, he'd spent 40 years in the wilderness. He had been there in, in Egypt when they got delivered. He crossed the Red Sea. He saw the miracles of feeding them in the wilderness for all those years. And even now, though, Joshua is encouraged, and he's, God is reminding him, I will be with you, Joshua. And that doesn't mean it was easy. They were getting ready to go across the, the Jordan, and they were going to do battle. People were going to die. It wasn't like God brought them over there, and everybody just fell down, right? They lost their lives. But what Lord was saying is, look, I have purpose here. I'm leading you. I will be with you. No matter what happens to you, Joshua, I will be with you if you will just obey and honor me. This idea of being content, we see it in Philippians. Paul talks about it in Philippians chapter 4, verse 11 and 12. Not that I am speaking of being in need, Paul says, but for I have learned whatever situation I am to be content I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. And in, in, in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Now, I left off the last verse there, 13, but I've decided I'm going to share it with you. It's this idea that he says, so all things are possible. I can do all things through Christ, or I can do all things, right? And so often we take that scripture way out of context. What Paul is saying here, he says, look, when I have nothing, I can rest in the Lord. When I have much, I rest in the Lord. I can do all of that because of Christ. I can handle what my flesh does and the variations in my flesh because I can do it because of Christ. Not that you can do anything you want because you have Jesus. That's not what he's saying. That's a prosperity teaching that is totally taken out of context here in this. Right? But I'll tell you what, I love Charles Spurgeon, he has a couple quotes. I'm going to read one of them to you about this idea of where we find our contentment and how he feels about the church. Charles Spurgeon says this. He says, I defy the devil himself to mention circumstances under which I ought to be miserable if this text is true. Meaning, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Right? Child of God, nothing ought to make you unhappy when you realize this precious text. Now, there's another quote that I was going to read to you that I decided just too much. Spurgeon basically said, if you don't have contentment as a Christian, you're insane. That was his word. He says, because if you believe this, if you believe that if God is for you, nothing can harm us, nothing be against us, and he never leaves us, never forsakes us. And if, if Jesus says, no one can take you from my Father's hand, those he's given me, and that's true, and you believe that, and you believe that you will have eternity, that he has promised that, then no matter what happens in your life, you should be able to be content. And I know that's not simple. And yet many of us don't even meditate on that. In fact, I was reading, I've read this multiple times, people overseas in third world countries, we send missionaries over and we, we say, we're praying for you, we're, we're helping you. And they'll look at us and say, the Americans and say, you know, we're really, you need to be praying for your own country. We trust the Lord. We have nothing and our hope is in him. We look at America and we say, do you really trust him? Because it looks like you trust in yourselves and you're living a very decadent lifestyle. Maybe America should be the one to be prayed for. 
So we just have to be so careful with how we have, handle money and where we find our contentment, where we find our peace. Once again, money's, there's nothing wrong with having a nice vehicle, a nice home. There's, in fact, that's great. There's nothing wrong with that. But it cannot be the thing that dominates our life. It cannot be the thing. If, if it all is gone tomorrow, would it destroy you? What Spurgeon's saying here and what Scripture's saying here is, look, we should be content no matter what. Last one. Last thing, number six. How can we know that we're living for Christ? By trusting solely in the promise and sufficiency of God. By trusting solely in the promise and sufficiency of God. Hebrews chapter 13, verse six. So we can confidently say, right? Why are we confident? Because the Lord never forsakes us nor leaves us. Right? For we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Right? What can man do to me? We fear what man can do. Whether it's putting us in prison, whether it's persecution, whether it's taking our material possessions from us, even taking our life. But the writer here is saying, if you're going to live the Christian life, you need to understand that God may allow that to happen in your life. I don't know, but you should not fear because he will never leave you nor forsake you. That piece there that I will not fear, what can man do to me, comes from Psalm 118, verses 6 through 9. It says, the Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. He's basically saying, that, look, don't trust in man. And even if that person has great wealth and power, still don't put your trust there. I don't care how much authority they have, do not put your trust there. Only in the Lord. And so as we wrap up today, I just remind you that to believe in Christ requires living for him. And we do that by serving other believers, by intentionally caring for people in need, by intentionally serving people, strangers that we don't know, to to interact with them and getting outside of our bubble, by honoring marriage, by honoring marriage, by turning away from sexual immorality, by, by despising it in our own life, by encouraging and not being judgmental of those that are struggling with it. You know, it's, it's this idea that, that somebody wants to come and say, well, you know, you have struggle with gossip and you want to condemn me for sexual morality. I'm going to look at you and say, well, I'm condemning you for gossiping about my sexual immorality, right? This idea is, is that we all have sin. It's about our helping each other, praying for each other, to remove each other from the pit that we're in. It is not about saying, well, your sin is worse than mine. Clearly, there are times when certain types of sin have more consequences. Absolutely. But we're all sinful, and so our goal is in the basis of foundation of love is to help one another. And then finally, being content in Christ and then solely trusting the promise and the sufficiency of Christ. So what's your takeaway this morning? If all these things are true, the takeaway is if you believe in him, you will live for him. You say, what, what do you mean by that? Well, if you really believe, you will really live for him. Not perfectly. No one does that perfectly. You will strive to do it perfectly. You will fail. Grace is sufficient, but you will do that. If you are not striving for these things, if you're not striving to live pure and honor marriage, 
if you're not striving to, to, to love the brothers and sisters in the church, if you're not striving to minister to people who are in need, if you're struggling with contentment and you're not pushing in on any of those areas, you really need to be concerned about where you are with Christ and truly whether you are a believer. Now, I'm not saying an indiscretion here, we struggle here. That's different. This is a willful life that he's talking about. Because if you believe, you will live for him. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for our time together today. I trust that you are glorified in the reading and the teaching of your word, that we've rightly divided it for your glory and for our good. Fathers, we have read here from the passage in Hebrews, Lord, help those words apply to us as much as it did in that first century. May we love the fellowship of the believers. May we honor marriage in all that we do, how we talk about it, how we prepare for it, how we wrestle for it while we're in it. May we do that, Father, in a way that glorifies you. May we not dishonor it in sexual immorality. Father, may we be on guard for that sexual morality in our life. May we seek it out and kill it. May we flee from it. May we put it to death. May we pray for those who are struggling and come alongside them and and help them get out of the pit. And Father, help us to put our trust in your promise and your soul sufficiency because you've said you will never leave us nor forsake us. So Father, if that is true, we can be content because you have given us eternity, which is what allowed Paul to tell us in Philippians chapter four. We can rejoice always. I say again, rejoice, because we are yours. Father, we praise you and thank you. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks again for joining us today. If you have questions about this message or about the Ridge Church, you can contact us at info at Have a blessed day.